I am seeing the difference in the sunlight that happens here in late July and early August, and each year suggests fall. Of course, it can still remain or rise to well over 90 degrees for weeks on end, so no worries about your golden or scorching summer dreams in Iowa. Thank you for joining us today. Hope Edelman is going to talk with us about the life-altering magic of revision, or how revisiting, reassessing, and reframing a story just might change your life. Hope is the author of eight books of nonfiction, including the bestseller Motherless Daughters and the ebook Boys Like That, Two Cautionary Tales of Love. She is the recipient of a Pushcart Prize and a New York Times Notable Book of the Year designation, and this July marks her 18th year teaching with us here in Iowa City. Thank you, Hope. Please help me welcome her. Okay, great. Can you hear me in the back? Excellent. Okay. Uh, thank you all for coming here today to hear and talk and discuss revision. I am a nonfiction writer, but hopefully what I say is going to be appropriate for fiction writers and poets as well. Um, you know, when I go out at home in Los Angeles and people ask me what I do, I say I'm a writer, but really what I should say and do sometimes say is I'm a rewriter. And the screenwriters get that, but everyone else is like, huh? But really, I spend most of my time in front of the computer reworking material, not necessarily generating it from the start. Um, every draft of every essay that I publish, every chapter in my books, goes through at least 10 to 12 revisions. And that's not unusual for most writers that I know. What's unusual is to have a first draft come out and feel artistically, intellectually, and factually and emotionally complete. That doesn't happen very often. Um, but still, you have to start somewhere to get to that many drafts. And you know, wouldn't it be nice, though, if the first draft just slid out effortlessly? Think about how productive all of us would be my output would increase by about 400% or more um, if I could get a first draft out with minimal need for additional work. So, I mean, let's be honest, this is what we all hope a first draft will look like, right? That's the dream, the ideal, but in reality, it usually looks more like this. And that's perfectly okay. A messy first draft if you can allow yourself to produce one, if you're a perfectionist like me, that is really, really hard to just let everything spill out on the page and produce a draft that you know isn't that good. But if you can do it, it's an admirable goal, and it's a necessary one even because it provides you with the raw material that you can begin to shape into your short story, your essay, your novel, your memoir, your screenplay, or your poem. Last week, I taught a class called The Story Beneath the Story, and there was a woman in there who was a sculptor. And we talked about how the first draft is like the block of clay or bronze or stone that you begin with, and you start chiseling away at it. And you create something that sort of resembles what the finished product will look like in your first go, um, or your first attempt. And then you go back in, and you refine, 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 and you put in all the detail and the final polish. And that's, that's very similar, actually, to the writing process. 
<clears throat> the goal is not to produce something publishable right out of the shoot. You might, and that would be great, but that's not realistic for most of us. Instead, the goals of a first draft are these, to generate raw material, like I just said, so you have something to work with. It's also to get the beats of a story down. You're laying it all out on the page from start to finish. Juliet talked about this yesterday, how her friends who, who write prose told her just get the story down in the first go. You're gonna follow a timeline if you're writing something that's linear or chronological. You start creating a narrative arc. Also, it's to experiment with structure and to experiment with form to see where you wanna begin, to see what type of poem might be the best form to express this idea. Um, do you wanna begin with a chapter from the middle of your story or do you wanna start at the dead beginning? Um, you're experimenting with voice and style. And it's also to assess what you have and what you still need. And readers, of course, can be very helpful for that. Neil Gaiman says, I'll write a first draft, and then if it wasn't typed, I'll type it up, and then I'll email it to friends and find out what didn't work or what puzzled them. So good to have a, a group of trusted readers to give you feedback if you feel comfortable giving early drafts out. Remember, the purpose of the first draft is not to get it right, it's to get it written. Or to create what Anne Lamott calls a terrible first effort. Typically a first draft is to just get the bones of your story down. Annie Lamott quotes a friend of hers who says the first draft is the down draft. <laughs> It's where you get everything down. And in a narrative, that is usually the main beats of the story, the plot points. First drafts of prose stories are typically, not always, but typically very episodic. You're writing this happened, then that happened, and then he said this, and I said that, and she showed up unexpectedly, and this is what happened, and this is what I thought about it. Uh, it creates a scaffolding that you can climb back up each time you revise and polish. And sometimes you'll climb higher, and sometimes you'll just go halfway and polish that window for a really long time. But at least you have the scaffolding to work with. Remember, um, well, those of you who've taught or who have taken creative writing classes, especially in high school or even in college, the old adage, show, don't tell, right? In fiction, that usually means dramatize, don't summarize. It means spend time developing your scenes. Include dialogue, include detail, include description. Don't just tell us what happened, show us, drop us into the scene. Give us the three-dimensional experience as if we're right there with your characters. In memoir and personal essays, show, don't tell um, means something a little different. It means don't just it means dramatize and reflect, but I think it really means show and tell in nonfiction. Um, that, in the workshop last week that I taught, with the story beneath the story, we spent a lot of time talking about balancing narration and reflection. And um, Juliet talked about that yesterday, about inserting reflection into your narration. She talked about the outer versus the inner narrative. The outer narrative is the story, the beats of the story, getting them down. That's the narration. 
and the inner narrative shows the emotional growth or the intellectual growth, the personal growth of the main character as a result of being exposed to those external events. So the first draft is usually the showing part. And um, in Antioch, where I taught for 12 years in the MFA program, I used to do a two-hour seminar called Show and Tell. And we would look at different works of nonfiction, in particular, sometimes fiction, and look at where the author would choose to insert reflection. The first draft is usually the showing, and then everything that comes after the very first draft, of course, is revision. Anne Lamott calls the re revised drafts, the subsequent drafts, the up drafts because you fix it up. I like that. The down draft is when you get it all down, and the up draft is when you fix it up. And in my opinion, that's where the magic comes in because it's in the up drafts where the telling in nonfiction and often in fiction gets layered in and deepened. In my experience in the workshops and in my own writing, <coughs> the revisions, the, the, the subsequent drafts, are where the inner narrative is really crafted. Now, you might be saying, the inner narrative, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, I'm talking about the reflective part. I mean, that's how you express the inner narrative. But really, what is the inner narrative? In my class yesterday um, and last week, we did an exercise that helps people really start to articulate and understand the inner narrative. So on the board, I drew a line here. I said, that's the beginning of your story. You know, you create parentheses around a time period when you're writing memoir. And so that's, you know, chronologically, that's the beginning of your story. And over here is a line. And chronologically, that's the end of your story. And then there's a line that runs right through the middle, and that is sort of your baseline emotion. You're not happy, you're not sad, you're just average, normal, homeostasis, right? Equilibrium, emotional equilibrium. And then I say, okay, now I'd like you to go to the beginning of your story and ask yourself, where were you emotionally when the story began? Were you at a high point? Were you at a low point? Or was everything kind of just average? Make a little dot there, and then make a note that that, you know, what scene that is. And then what happened next, right? So I'm asking you to plot the outer narrative of your story. What happened next? Where were you emotionally on the chart then? Were you low? Were you high? You know, was it stable? And then throughout the story, make the dots and, and show us where you were emotionally. Then, from left to right, take your pen and connect all the dots from left to right. That's your emotional story arc. And the secret when you do that exercise, I'll tell you now, which kind of messes it up. You don't get the real pure experience. But unless you're in my class, that won't, probably won't happen. So do it at home. But those dots are probably key scenes in your memoir or your novel because they came up for you right away. You thought, oh, yeah, this was really important. So you'll look at those, and you'll decide, well, are those scenes that I want to dramatize? and develop because something important happened there. There was an inner shift in me. And then you also look at the beginning and you look at the end and you see where you were. Did you wind up at a lower point or a higher point? Kurt Vonnegut diagrams stories. Um, I recommend watching him on YouTube. It's just called The Shape of Story or The Shape of Narrative. You just Google Kurt Vonnegut Shape of Story YouTube. It's about four and a half minutes and it's really, really funny. It is classic Vonnegut. But he draws a diagram 
that where the, the, the uh, protagonist starts at a point that's slightly above equilibrium, and then something happens and they drop all the way down emotionally, and then they spend the rest of the story trying to dig their way back up, and he calls that the man in whole structure. Man, right? Person in whole. The person has experiences some kind of adversity and falls down into the hole and then spends the rest of the story trying to climb their way back up, and usually they wind up emotionally at a higher point than where they began. In fiction, he said, that's typically what you aim for because people like endings that are happier than beginnings. In memoir, of course, we're working with a real life story that isn't always how it ends up. Sometimes we wind up having to come to terms with something that we didn't want to happen. Um, but, you know, so we might be on a lower point. But that's a good way to trace the arc of your inner narrative. Okay, so telling, reflection. Sometimes in the classroom it is called exposition. Uh, Judith Barrington, in writing the memoir, calls it musing. She has a great chapter called Scene Summary and Musing that talks about reflection. That's what she calls it. Or sometimes it's just called the telling. Occasionally it's called editorializing. And this is where your narrator stops the action, typically, to muse, explain, reflect, analyze, speculate, project, or digress. It's a pacing device. It slows your story down. In nonfiction in particular, and this is really important, remember that what happens to the author is not really what matters to the reader. Unless it's someone who knows you and is really interested in all the details of what happened to you, that's not really what matters to them. What matters to the reader is what you make of what happened, what you think about it, and how you changed. That's Vivian Gornick. That's a bad paraphrase of Vivian Gornick from page 91 of The Situation and the Story. Um, we can say the same for a character in fiction. What happened to the character is not usually what matters most. The external events, the outer narrative, is not the whole story. It's what the character makes of those events and how she or he changes or grows or doesn't is what matters. That is the inner narrative. So how to revise. That's a good question. How do I revise? How do I go about revising? I wish I had a formula or a method that everyone in this room could follow. But the truth is different people have different practices for revising that work best for them. Some plow right through from page one to page 350 and then go back and do a major overhaul. I've got friends who do that, novelists in particular, who just sit down and they write the whole book from beginning to end and then they look at what they've got, right? They've got their complete first draft and they go back and then they do like a wholesale revision and again and again with all those pages at once. To me, that's overwhelming. Um, I, other, other writers like me just plot along chapter by chapter, redrafting as we go. I write a chapter, I do a first draft of a chapter, and then I revise it, and then I revise it again, and then I revise it again, and then I'll show it to some people, and I might show it to my editor, and then I'll move on to the next one, and I'll still go back and tinker a little bit with the first one, but I'll be developing the next one, and then I'll move ahead like that. Um, I, oh, there's the situation in the story by Vivian Gornick. 
That's the book I was just mentioning. Nora Ephron has a hilarious essay called Revision and Life. It's in Nora Ephron Collected. And she wrote most of her essays, I think they were mainly for Esquire, on a typewriter back in the 1970s. And she said that every day when she was working on an essay in the morning, she would sit down at the typewriter and she would start typing the essay from the beginning. She would take what she already had and she would retype it, right? And she would revise as she went. And she said she types like the wind. So she always hoped that her momentum would like propel her into what needed to come next. And I often do the same thing. I start revising from the top. When I'm, when I'm working on a chapter, unless I've had an idea during the night that, you know, that lands somewhere in the middle of the chapter and I want to get it down, I usually start from the top. My chapters are generally between 20 and 35 pages, so it's not impossible to do that, especially if I've only got six or seven pages down so far, I'll go back and revise those six or seven pages. But Nora Ephron, like me, says the problem with that is that the beginning of your piece gets rewritten 40 times, and the end is sort of scrapped together right before your deadline. <laughs> so she said, that's why the beginnings of my pieces are so much stronger than the endings. And when I've got students sometimes, or clients, who show me work, and the beginning is really fantastic, and the ending still needs a lot of work, I ask them if that's their method, because it usually is that the ending just hasn't gotten enough time and attention and love as the beginning has gotten through the revision process. Uh, Joan Didion has said something similar. Um, she said, when I'm working on a book, I constantly retype my own sentences. Every day I go back to page one and just retype what I have. It gets me into a rhythm. Once I get over maybe 100 pages, I won't go back to page one, but I might go back to page 55 or 20 even. But then every once in a while, I feel the need to go to page one again and start rewriting. At the end of each day, I mark up the pages I've done, pages or page. See, even Joan Didion sometimes only gets one page a day out. <clears throat> At the end of the day, I mark up the pages I've done, pages or page, all the way back to page one. I mark them up so that I can retype them in the morning. It gets me past that blank terror. So what she's saying is that in longer pieces, she picks up with what, what we call the leading edge of the story, like for the day. She'll start wherever you know, she picks and then move forward from there. There's also a lot to be said for the new set of eyes theory. Neil Gaiman also says that after he gets feedback from friends, then he puts his piece and sets it aside for a while. He says, if I can, I'll put it away for a week or two not look at it, try to forget about it. Then I'll take it out and read it as if I've never seen it before and had nothing to do with its creation. Things that are broken become very obvious suddenly because you've allowed yourself a bit of creative distance. I mean, I'm sure probably everyone in this room has started something, put it aside, then gone back and looked at it, you know, weeks, months, even years later and either thought, Wow, that was really bad. How did I not see that back then? Or, wow, that was really good. Why didn't I stick with that and finish it? Um, I've got a couple essays like that that have been hanging around for a really long time. And um, it's not that they need revision so much now. I think they, they're waiting for me to have the experience I need to have, to have the insight I need to bring to that essay, because that's another thing that time and some critical distance gives you. 
some authors, especially those who are visual thinkers or visual planners, get very creative with their revisions. Look at that one. That's J.K. Rowling. That's her revision of The Order of the Phoenix. That is either the fourth or fifth book in the Harry Potter series. I, I can't remember which one, but um, that's her diagram for revising it. And so she drew it out like that. I know other um, authors that use index cards or sheets of paper. Um, I have a friend who converted his entire garage into like a whiteboard and ta tacked all or taped all of his pages of a novel, you know, around the entire inside of the garage and then moved things around like that when he was revising because he needed to actually see what was in front of him. You know, when we were writing on a typewriter, we had hard copies, right? So we could always just sort of move things around on the floor. But on a computer, we're scrolling and cutting and pasting. And it gets a little unwieldy for some of us who were accustomed to working with hard copies or like working with hard copies or think visually. So that's a, just another example of how an author revises. Now, um, for some authors, revision is mostly about cutting back. Some people just let the story spill out all of it, know that there's too much, you know, you don't want a 1,200 page first draft, right? But a 600 page first draft is not that unusual um, among the, the writers that I know. And then they'll cut back, right? Then they'll decide what they need to omit and move things around. But for others, it's about adding material. It's about seeing what they still need and getting feedback about that and including more. Um, I tend to do both, but I find that in revision, my chapters tend to grow more than shrink. Some people shrink more than grow. Um, it's really very individual, and it also depends on the chapter, too. Um, like I said, some people like to revise right on the computer, right on the screen. Others, like me, prefer to edit or mark up the pages, like Joan Didion said, on hard copy which means I am forever spending money on inkjet cartridges and reams of paper. Um, you know, when I buy new printers, I don't look at the price of the printer. I look at the price of the inkjet cartridges, because that's where my big expense is, because I'm constantly printing out pages. I, I just love marking it up, like, um, you know, with a pen. Here's an example of, you know, this is long before computers, but that li that's Langston Hughes. That's his revision of the poem, The Ballad of Booker T when he went in and did, did um, his edits on it. That's from the Library of Congress. You can see a lot of really great you know, first drafts, uh, subsequent drafts, revisions with the author's notations there. Um, when are you done revising? It's a good question. Um, I'm done revising when the deadline for publication <laughs> arrives, right? <laughs> or, when, or when my editor says, give me the pages yesterday or when I need to get paid. <laughs> um, I think it was Proust, but I'm not sure. I have to look this up, who said, a piece of writing is never finished, only abandoned. Um, that's been you know, generally my, my situation. Um, for some authors who see prose as, uh, ever, as an organism that is ever evolving, because ideas are evolving all the time, and our perception of events is changing all the time, even pub publication isn't a capitulation to the final product. The poet Tina Chang has said, I don't think poems are ever finished. I have been known to cross out words and add lines to my books of poetry. 
If I'm not happy with a line before a reading, I'll gladly edit the text in my book so that I feel comfortable reading it to an audience. Text and language is alive, so it's always changing. To me, there is no end point, and that's a joy. I've done that too. You know, sometimes I'll take out a line that I realize didn't actually need to be there when I'm doing a reading from a published product or a published text. Um, but no big revisions, but you know, you could. So what approach is going to be best for you? I'm an advocate of design thinking, and design thinking says leverage on your strengths. Don't waste time trying to shore up your weaknesses. Identify what you're good at and do more of that. I also really like the work of Kathy Colby. She has developed um, a, a theory called conation, and she's identified four conative styles. You can just go to her website, colby.com, and you can take her test, I think. I mean, it's like $50, but I have my clients do it sometimes because it's really worth it to discover what your natural mode of operation is. And she has identified four categories, fact finder, follow through, quick start, and implementer. The fact finder is someone who likes to get all the information up front to front load the research and then sit down and write. The quick start is somebody who likes to just get going, jump right in and do the research as they go along. Follow through and implementer are more about people who like to make things visual or put things together. You know, they're structural thinkers. Um, and most people will have a mix like this up there. Um, it gives you an idea of how your revision process, your, your first draft and revision process might look so that you don't get caught up in thinking, well, other people do it this way and they're really successful. Why can't I do it that way? You probably can't do it that way because you can't do it that way, right? I have tried my whole life to be a quick start and it just isn't going to happen. I'm not going to sit down without research done because I'm going to feel incompetent. I'm going to feel frightened. I'm going to feel like I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, those are the messages when I try to be a quick start. I am a fact finder through and through. When I took this test, I was like an eight in fact finder and a two in everything else. I mean, it was the weirdest skew I've still ever seen on, on Colby results. But I like to, I spend literally like six months or more just doing research and interviews before I even sit down to write. I may have written the book proposal, so I have like the bones and I have a table of contents. And I like to have the table of contents to work from. That's my blueprint. I don't get married to it. It always changes. But it sort of like just gives me a sense of security to know that I have a path that I'm going to follow. So that's how I work. And I've tried to write books other ways. And it's really frustrating. And it just doesn't get done or I don't produce my best work. So I mean, that's, how, that's my method of operation. It is really useful to find out what yours is too and then just try to do more of it. Okay, now we're going to talk about the life-changing part of this se seminar or this, um, this 11s because that's what was promised to you, the, the life-changing magic of revision. The secret is the magic that occurs during revision isn't just that the prose improves. It's that also that our relationship to the story ripens. Each time we go back to rework or polish, we are deepening our relationship with the story 
If you're writing memoir, you're deepening your relationship to your own story. If you're writing autobiographical fiction that's loosely or largely based on an experience you've had, it would be the same if you're writing poems that are also born from personal experience then too. Um, we're often learning more about ourselves in the process insofar that we are learning more about how we perceive the material that's on the page. And if you're writing memoir, this can be a truly life-altering event. And workshop discussions can be part of it. I've seen people's lives change around the table with just some gentle questioning. It's usually a request for reflection. It's, I don't understand why, in, in the, the memoir class, I never let people say I and talk directly to the author like that. So they'll say, I don't understand why the protagonist, or using the name, I don't understand why John did this on page three. It doesn't seem like the kind of response that I would expect. So why is he acting differently or inconsistently you know, than, he, than he has for all, you know, up, up until that point? And that's an opportunity or an occasion or an invitation for John to ask himself, well, why did I react that way? I'm going to need to explain that to readers if they're wondering. I really need to think about that. And if he takes the time to really think about that and just uncover it and discover it and articulate it, that's when you know transformation starts happening within ourselves. And sometimes in a workshop, you know, someone will, will ask the author or say that in a workshop, and during the time when the author can respond, they will actually already know the answer. They just didn't realize it was important to put in. Or it will come to them in that moment, and they'll share it with us. And you, it can get very, very emotional when people realize something that, um, to be true, that they hadn't been able to access before. And that can happen in front of the computer. My tip is when I start crying in front of the screen. It either means I'm being overly sentimental, which is always a risk in my, my life, or it means that I've actually hit on something real. And it's very emotional because I wasn't able to access it before, and I might be touching it for the first time. In, you know, in that framework. So um, just a few more words about the effect and, and the influence of time. A time allows us to create some critical distance from a draft. We were talking in class the other day about how um, there was, for a while, a real rush to get popular bloggers to publish books. And a lot of blogging was like keeping a diary, right? It was people who were just writing things as they were happening, like that night or the next day, and they didn't have a lot of critical distance. And not a lot of those books were really successful because they just didn't have the, the, the authors didn't have the opportunity to reflect or add insight or really understand what those events had meant in, a, in the larger sense because the blog posts were just lifted from the internet and put into, you know, put onto paper and, and sold in a bookstore. Um, they were very episodic. It was a lot of outer narrative. They just, because it takes time to really understand your story. Occasionally, you'll know what something means pretty quickly. But a lot of the time, we need critical distance and we need to have additional new experiences in order to achieve the insights that we can then bring back and apply to our stories. And that's when magic occurs and transformation, inner transformation happens. I mean, think about it this way. Every time you write a book, you have an outer narrative and an inner narrative, right? The experience of writing the book is its own story, or the experience of telling your story is its own story. The outer narrative are, you know, 
coming to the workshop here, the time you put into it, the days, you know, the things that you rearrange so that you can have time in front of the computer. It's all of, you know, what everyone, what anyone standing next to you or traveling by your side throughout that story would be able to observe as well. The inner narrative is how your relationship to that story is changing and the new insights that you're gaining. That's one of the inner narratives. There might be others as well, depending on the person. And this is where writing and therapy start to intersect, or self-therapy or self-help, right? Um, those of us who teach writing classes know that we have to be really careful about crossing the border into therapy unless we are licensed to do that kind of work. And even then, it's not, uh, not typical to do it in the classroom. But um, there is a type of therapy called narrative therapy. Is anyone familiar with narrative therapy? Anyone ever heard of it? Yeah, narrative therapy developed in the 1980s, was started by a social worker by the name of Michael White in Adelaide, Australia. Um, and I've been studying it for about the past year and a half, taking workshops in it, and I find it really fascinating. There's a lot of overlap with what we do, particularly in the memoir workshop, because at the heart of narrative therapy are really two premises. One is it teaches people to externalize their story and not identify the problem in themselves and give a name to whatever it is they're struggling with and view it from a bit of a distance, which is kind of what we're doing with memoir. We're externalizing our stories. We're putting them on a page. We're creating an artifact to share with other people. Um, but it's also about re rewriting your stories, looking at the story that you've been telling yourself about your own life, and then asking with some curiosity, uh, um, is that really still true? Is everything in there, did, is that really what happened? Is, or can I find examples of times when you know, maybe some of my basic premises about myself were disproven? And you go in and you write an alternative narrative that's equally true. Um, we're not writing alternative narratives in a classroom, but we're examining our stories. And we might be challenged around the workshop table. You know, is that really true? That doesn't sound real. What we hear around the table sometimes is, I'm not buying that. I don't believe that. That doesn't ring true for me. In narrative therapy, there's a distinction between a thin narrative and what's called a thick narrative, which is very similar to the distinction between showing and telling in the writing workshop. The thin narrative is, um, a, let's say there's a line there, right? Like the, that's, what's above it is external and seen, and what's below it is subterranean. The thin narrative sits above that line. And underneath that line is what the author makes of the story. The thin narrative is the outer narrative. It's the episodic event, uh, events. The thick narrative lives in between two lines, it's, or underneath the main line. It's very thick. It includes the plotted action, but it also includes explanation, analysis, and reflection. So the narrative therapist will be, will be encouraging clients to reflect on their own stories and talk about what they think and what they feel about it, because that's where the healing really happens. Um, the work of James Pennebaker in the 1980s at the University of Texas, the work he did with expressive writing, found the same thing. You know, it's like religion. People are coming at it from all different directions, but they're getting to the same place. You know, you're looking for that spiritual connection with something larger than yourself. Um, so James Pennebaker is a psychologist, and he took a group of students at the University of Texas, and he wanted to see if writing about traumatic experiences was going to give them any um, physical or mental benefits. Because he already knew that people 
who have had trauma were more in their past were more likely to have physical and mental distress later in life. And he also knew that suppressing a story that you want to tell can lead to adverse physical and mental effects as well. But he wanted to see if expressive writing would help people. So he divided his students into two groups. One was the expressive writing group. One was the control group. And in the control group, they came in four days in a row, 15 minutes a day. No magic to that. That was just the classrooms that he was able to get in the amount of time divided by the students. So he'd have them come write for 15 minutes a day, four days in a row. And um, they'd write about something neutral, like their dorm room or their shoes, right? And then he had the expressive writing students also 15 minutes a day, four days in a row, but he asked them to write about the most traumatic experience they had had in their lives so far. And they had very detailed instructions for what he was hoping that they would do, which was to write about your thoughts, write about your feelings. And they were worried that the students in a sterile classroom environment wouldn't really open up, but they did. I'm, students were crying as they wrote. Um, they got very emotional. They would stop him on campus and thank him for the opportunity to tell their stories. Um, and they tracked both groups of students for six months and found that the expressive writing students were only making half as many visits to the student health center as the control group students. And they didn't know if that was because those students weren't getting as sick as the other students or that somehow writing about the expressive events had um, made them not need or feel the need to go get checked out. They weren't really sure. So many more studies occurred and it kept replicating the same results that um, there did seem to be physical benefits. However, then they did more studies. They found that just writing about what had happened, the thin narrative, did not lead to, to positive benefits. They also found that just venting your emotion on the page actually left students worse off than they'd been at the beginning. It was the interaction of thoughts, feelings, and actions. It was the students writing what they thought about how they felt and how they felt about what they thought that gave them the most benefits. And that's what we're aiming for in a thick narrative. And that's what we're aiming for in memoir and in your memoir classrooms. It's important to remember that the best we can do is to try to capture our point of view and our insights at the time we are committing words to the page and to acknowledge that we're only getting a snapshot in time because our insights might change later down the road. Julia talked about this yesterday, that over the eight years that she was writing her book, her perception of the story and the way that she thought about the events or analyzed them or felt about them was changing over time. Um, and in fact, we should expect that to happen, right? That's life. The more time and experience we accumulate and the more distance we get from an event, it's going to change the way it looks. Um, that's an indicator of personal growth. So we actually want that to happen. But you know, you might say, well, why should I write the story now? I'm going to think really differently about it in five or 10 years. Yeah, you will. So write it differently then. Um, you're just committing it to the page right now. I really got a firsthand experience in this um, when I had the opportunity to revise my first book and then had the opportunity to revise it again, which is really unusual to get to revisit the same material, rework it, and republish it twice. The, this was my first book that I'm talking about. That's the very first edition of Motherless Daughters. It came out in 1994. 
I was 29 years old when that book came out. So I was 27 and 28 when I wrote it. I started it here in Iowa City. And then when I finished my master's program, I moved to New York. I was single. I was uh, living in New York, so no kids. Um, I had no idea what my future was going to hold. And um, so when I wrote the book in, let's say, 1993, it was 12 years after my mom had died which in the grand scheme of things wasn't a whole lot because for the first like seven or eight years I hadn't even talked about it. Um, so I really hadn't been processing that experience for very long. So I wrote that book from the point of view of a 27 and 28 year old um, and who was you know, just really starting to explore what that, what that death had meant to me and what it was going to mean to me moving forward. So that one came out in 1994. In 2006, after the original um, copyright had expired, um, I thought, yeah, I should really do another edition because so much has happened in the world. Like, how can I have that book out there and not talk about 9-11? That was a really big deal in terms of uh, cultural grief. And it helped, um, it helped a lot of the women who had lost their moms at an early age um, really, uh, especially those who'd lost their moms, suddenly, some of them, their grief was reactivated. Others, people would come to them and say, now I understand how you, know, how you felt. They felt that the culture at large was getting a much better understanding of what they had been through as children. Um, also, Princess Diana had died. There had been a couple other major news events, and this book was looking really dated. So I revised it in 2006. So I wrote it in 2000, 2004 and 2005. Um, so I was like 40, 41 at that time. Okay, I'm living in California now. I'm married. I have two small children, and I'm about to turn the age my mom was when she died, which is a really significant transition point for anyone who's lost a parent. Anyone in here? 14% of Americans have lost a parent or a sibling before the age of 18, so I'm going to assume that there are some of you in this room as well. And if any of you lost a parent um, when that parent was relatively young and have approached or passed their age at time of death, it may have been a significant transition point for you as well. So I was anticipating that when I was writing the second edition. And that got folded into the book. Also, my dad had passed away in the interim. And you'll notice in this book, I'm really careful about what I say about my dad, because he's still alive. And in this book, I felt freer and also knew that I would have his permission. My dad was an alcoholic my entire childhood. That really factored into how, what happened after my mom died and how he was and wasn't there for us. Um, and I didn't write about that in 94 because he hadn't sobered up yet. And I knew that it would be devastating for him to come out and say that. And it wasn't my place to give him a label. But in between 94 and 2006, he had stopped drinking and we talked about it a lot, and I knew he'd be okay with me talking about it because I was so proud of him. I wasn't ashamed of it. I was really proud of him, and I could see him as a more heroic figure than I could when I wrote the first book. So that's all in that book in 2006. Um, in 2014, you can see it was the 20th anniversary of that book, and it stayed in print the whole time, partly because I was able to revise and update it. There's about 15% new material in here, in this version. But then I got to rewrite it in 2014. And I went back, and 2014, a lot is different in my life now. I think I wrote that book, I was 49, uh, 49 when I did the 20th anniversary edition. Um, my kids were teenagers. My, um, my oldest daughter, who was born in 97, is now you know, the age that I was, or about to turn the age I was, 
when my mom died, and um, I was long past the point where, I mean, my mom died at 42 <coughs> of breast cancer. And you know, so I was carrying this fear that I was also gonna die of breast cancer at 42, and that didn't happen. And you know, it was 11 years later when I wrote that book. So that was not a fear that I was carrying around with me anymore. It was actually something that I thought of as very much in the past. And in fact, I had gotten past a lot of the fears that I was having in 94 and that I was still facing in 2006. And I realized as I went back to revise the book in 2014, I had a completely different relationship with my story. I mean, it was completely different. And I realized, you know what? The voice that told my story in 2006 is the one that needs to keep telling it. The person that I was is the narrator of this book. And so in 2014, I just updated statistics, and then I only come in at the very end in an epilogue. And I explain why I did that. Because the 41-year-old who's about to turn the age that her mom was when she died, I think is the better teller of that story than the 49-year-old who was looking back and was thinking, oh, I don't, I don't worry about that anymore. Don't worry about that. That's not going to happen. No, that's not what my readers wanted. My readers who were having the same concerns wanted to hear from someone who was right there with them, not someone who was so far past it that she couldn't really tap into those emotions anymore. So um, that was an opportunity for me to see how my relationship to my story changed. You know, I had, I told the story of my mom's death one way when I was 17. I told it another way after I became a mom. I, could, I looked at it a different way after I passed her age when she died. Right When I was 17, I was like, whew, 42, that's old. Wow, you know, she's, she lived a long life. She got married. She had kids. You know, um, and then I was 41 and 42. I was like, oh, my God. She is so young. My friends are still having babies. We're running marathons. It's like, that is so young. And now I look back, and it's like, wow, she was like a, a kid almost, you know? And, so our relationship to our, store, our own stories changes over time. Thank you all for coming today. And thank you to my terrific students this week. I'll see you in class.